0: Jesus, he came healing the sick and casting out demons and freeing those who were enslaved to the devil. He came to suffer and to die that all who are bound to death could have life. And yet their familiarity with the story made them blind to it. Jesus, you don't fit the picture of what we want you to be like. You don't act the way we think you should or say what we're hoping for and they missed what was right in front of them. I think with Christmas, we get so caught up
1: in all the details we know that we forget what we don't know. Hi, this is Chris from The Point, a church where you can come as you are and you can text in your questions. You may not be sure what you believe about God, Jesus, faith, or the Bible, and that's okay because faith is not about having it all figured out And God is not waiting for you to put your life together before he'll connect with you. If you'd like to find out more about The Point, you can visit our website at thepointknox.com or connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at The Point Knox. Don't hesitate to contact us or join us in person every Sunday morning at 1030 a.m. We pray this message has an impact in your life or at least makes it easy for you to connect with God where you are.
0: Well, once again, good morning. I had the chance to meet several of you today for the first time. Uh, So for those of you who don't know, my name is Adam. For those of you who know, it's still Adam. It hasn't changed. Uh, Welcome. I'm glad you're here today. As we prepare for his coming, we're looking at the story of Christmas and this reality of his coming And before we dive into scripture today, I have to talk about a very important subject, one that is hotly debated uh, by many of us, I'm sure. And that is the value of the Hallmark Christmas movie. (laughs) For some of us, the Hallmark Christmas movie is wonderful. We know exactly what to expect every time, right? Almost every Hallmark Christmas movie. You have the lady who's very successful in her career and lives in the city who's left her small town life behind and then she comes back, usually begrudgingly, to visit her family for Christmas and she gets swept off her feet by that wonderful southern gentleman who has everything put together and is everything she imagined. And then at the end, what do you know, plot twist every time. He just also happens to be independently wealthy because he owns some business and she leaves everything behind to have this perfect southern quaint little life. The end. Merry Christmas. And for some of us, we love those movies because they just feel so good, right? We can relate to the struggles and the stress of that exhausting city life, and we know just how much we don't want to go visit family, but we hope so desperately that this Christmas is different and we get swept off our feet and have a happily ever after, ah, the end. And for the rest of us, normal people, we hate Hallmark Christmas movies. we're like that's so predictable, right? We know exactly what's going to happen. It doesn't matter the title or the characters or the plot, they're all the same. And so instead of these Hallmark Christmas movies, we turn to movies that are less predictable, like tried and true Christmas movies, like Die Hard. Right? <laughs> And we believe these plots aren't predictable, even though the truth of the matter is, the good guy always wins and the bad guy doesn't. It's the same every time. But there's something about these stories that have a means of captivating our heart. Sometimes it's the predictable, the familiarity, the the comfort of knowing exactly what's coming next brings us peace and joy and we can't wait to participate. But other times, the predictability feels very boring. That's not real life. Nobody has that experience. Instead, it's more like you go home, and your family is grumpy, and you still hate your job, and you leave wondering, why did I go home to begin with? Bah humbug. Christmas sucks for some of us. Today, as we dive into this story of Christmas, You and I are at a disadvantage from those who first experienced it. See, for them, it was brand new. It was exciting and riveting and unlike anything they had anticipated. But for us, Christmas comes every year. We know the busyness. We know the stress. We know the season. We know the stories. We've heard a dozen or more sermons on the same text. This is boring. (sighs) Can we just get back to something more practical or important or enjoyable? As we dive into the story today, we'll see that the people of God, at the time of Jesus' coming, were not expecting what they got. And in fact, the familiarity for the story actually set them up to be unprepared to receive what God was freely giving. So today, we're going to be in Luke chapter 3. And we're going to look at this attitude they had and what do we do when Christmas feels like the same old, same old. Now, if you're familiar with scripture, you may notice that Luke chapter 3 actually starts after the Christmas story. And I don't just mean like a little bit after, it's like 30 years, 30 plus years in the future. There's a big jump here from the Christmas story to Luke chapter 3. But I'll unpack that here in a moment. Luke chapter three, beginning in verse one. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iteria and Traconitus, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Albinine, right? Anybody excited? You're like, what? Your eyes are glazing over. We read the story we hear so often, yet we're like, who are these people, and why does he care? Well, Luke, he's a historian and a physician, and he's writing very specifically, let me tell you a history. So more so than the other three gospel writers, Luke spells out significant details that are not really important to the story, but that are intended to place us as the reader into the moment in time it's happening. Let me tell you where this is happening and with whom it's happening so that there's validity to this story. So he goes on, all these names and all these places in this time. It says, during the high priesthood of Ananias and Cephas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. So now if you had read earlier in the first two chapters of Luke, Zechariah is this priest who at his old age has no children and God shows up and promises, I'm gonna give you a child. He's like, I don't, I don't believe it. And God says, you will be mute for the duration of your wife's pregnancy, which every, wife, every woman says, amen, thank you, God, right? <laughs> you will be mute for that duration of pregnancy, and then when your child is born, you shall name him John, for he will prepare the way for me, and he will tell the world about my coming. Sure enough, that happens. And it happens at the same time that Mary is told that she's going to have a baby in a pretty miraculous way. John comes along six months prior to Jesus as his cousin, and now Luke is writing about this man, John, as a grown-up, and the things he does. And he, being John, in verse 3, and he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. See, Luke, he quotes Isaiah chapter 40, and if you're familiar with the Old Testament, Isaiah, a prophet who came over 700 years prior to this time, repeatedly points forward to the coming Messiah, the one who's going to rescue us. And in chapter 40, he declares that before that Messiah comes, there will be one who comes to prepare the way, to make straight all the roads that are uneven and crooked, Basically saying, to make it easy that when he's there, you can't miss him. And Luke, in talking about John, says, John is this man. He's writing to the audience saying, I want you to know if you saw John doing the things he was doing, it's because he was fulfilling a promise to point towards the coming of the Messiah. How was he doing that? He was preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. See, there was this understanding and this custom that said if you've sinned and screwed up, you can't be made right with God internally until you're externally made right with God. And so there was a practice that was pretty normal where people would go to be baptized, sometimes with full immersion and sometimes with sprinkling and sometimes once and sometimes a bunch. They would go to somebody holier than them who was closer to God and they would confess their sins, and they would be baptized, which literally means immersed or washed. And they would externally be washed clean of their sin. They, they could then go to the temple and offer a sacrifice to be internally cleaned. And holistically, they would be made a new person. But the problem was, anybody ever do something you don't want to do that you know is wrong, but you keep doing it anyway? So with this outward repentance and then this need for inward change, they would constantly be coming back. We need more repentance. We keep screwing up. We need more. Here we are. And John was out preaching. You need to repent and turn from that which is wrong and that which is bad and toward something new. Then in verse 7, there's a whole host of people, a large crowd that has come out into the wilderness to John. In other gospels, we see that this crowd is not just ordinary people, but Pharisees. Individuals who were tasked with being the leaders of the group. The religious ones who set the example and showed everybody, this is how you should live. But unfortunately, if you've ever spent much time around really religious people, There's a tendency amongst those of us who believe in God, the more we walk with God to begin to think our walk with God makes us better than those who aren't walking with God. Have you ever met a religious person like that? Sometimes it's out of really vile uh, ambition, but sometimes it's out of a good, honest heart. They're desiring to do what is right, and in doing so, they alienate those who are not this group of Pharisees, these religious leaders, come to John, and Luke records this. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warns you to flee from the wrath to come? He says, look, don't you see what's right in front of you? You brood of vipers. He calls them out for their hypocrisy. You come to me seeking to be cleaned and yet you're not doing the things God's called you to do. You come to me seeking to be different and yet all you're wanting is some external reward. You want to feel good about yourself, but you don't actually want to change. He gives them this challenge. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. You see, part of the problem for the Jewish people was they held on to a promise that God had made several thousand years before. A promise that said, you will be my people and I will be your God. Sounds like a good promise to hold on to. But unfortunately, it had been over 460 years since they had their last prophet speak to them. Over 460 years of waiting for God to speak, and he seemed to be silent. And along the way, as they had even before the prophets came, they got really distracted. These people knew the story that God had made a promise to Abraham God spoke to Abraham and said, your descendants will be more numerous than the stars, more than the sands in the ocean. Your descendants will be that much and they will be my children forever. These people believing in this promise got really comfortable. Clearly, we're good with God because he made a promise. Clearly, we've got it all put together and we know he's going to speak again and when he speaks, he's going to do what we want him to do. They were so familiar with the story, it lost all of its meaning. John, he challenges them, you need to do the work of repentance. You see, it's one thing to say you believe something. It's another thing to put your money where your mouth is and act upon that belief. It's another thing to say, I'm going to change the things I'm doing so that the way I'm living is consistent with what I believe. He then gives a few examples. This is what he says. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the tree. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. You wanna live this life of faith as the children of God, here's what I encourage you to do love your neighbor. Care for those who don't have something. Use what God has given you to bless others. Yeah, that's great and stuff, but like, what does that mean for me, right? I mean, that's what they needed to do. Well, then he goes on. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? Now tax collectors were considered like the worst of the worst, the really dirty scoundrels, even more so than we think so of, of them today, right? Like they were known for being traitors, people who betrayed the people of God and served the Roman Empire, and not only that, they started cheating and stealing and taking off the top for themselves. These sinners come to be baptized. We also, like those religious people, we need repentance. What do we need to do? And this is what he says. He says, collect no more than you are authorized to do. You want to follow after God? You want to have this life that he's promised? You want to be his child? Do what's right. Don't steal. Don't lie. Be kind to your neighbor. Again, the third example. Soldiers also asked him, now, here's the deal. The soldiers were Roman citizens. So, in this one story, you have the religious people who think because of God's promise they are better than everybody else. And they are an exclusive elite class of people, holier than thou. And you have the sinners, the lowest of the low that nobody really liked. And then you have those soldiers. The ones who are far from God because they're Gentiles, they're not Jewish. And not only are they not Jewish, they may worship other gods perhaps like the Romans did. These soldiers also ask, what should we do? And John, he says this, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or false accusation. And be content with your wages. For all three of these groups holier than thou... John says, it's really simple. Love your neighbor. Treat others with kindness. Jesus, he later says something very similar. He says, look, the greatest commandment is to love God with everything you've got. And after that, the second greatest, love your neighbor as yourself. Against these things, there is no command. He says, look, if you're loving your neighbor and loving God, it will be okay. And yet, I think for many of us, we accidentally become like the Pharisees. We're really familiar with the story and we lose our sense of wonder. We lose our sense of expectation. In fact, John, he says, don't say that because you're children of Abraham, it'll be okay. In fact, in John chapter eight, a very similar thing happens with Jesus. Jesus declares that he and the father are one. Jesus declares that he's come from the father and the religious leaders get really offended. They say, we have Abraham as our father. What do you mean you have God as yours? And they begin to say, you must be possessed with a demon. You must be evil to say such things. And Jesus rebukes them. He says, you think that because Abraham is your father, everything's going to be okay. He calls them out. Look at the way you're missing what's right in front of you. You see, in the story they were familiar with and the story they knew, they knew that one day a Messiah would come. And one day when that Messiah came, he would take over and set them free from all oppression And not only would he set them free from all oppression, they would be free to worship God with nobody else interfering. And not only that, those who were sick would be healed and those who were blind would see and those who were in prison would be set free. And they believed that when this Messiah came, God would be with his people forever. But over those 460 years of silence, they knew the promise of what was to come so well that they lost sight of who was right in front of him. Jesus himself came as a baby that Christmas morning, God in the flesh, to fulfill all of the promises that God had said this will come, to set his people free. In fact, that's part of what makes them mad when we're like, we have Abraham as our father because he said that he and the truth that he gives would set them free. So no way. That's not fitting our narrative or our picture. Jesus, he came healing the sick and casting out demons and freeing those who were enslaved to the devil. He came to suffer and to die that all who are bound to death could have life. And yet their familiarity with the story made them blind to it. Jesus, you don't fit the picture of what we want you to be like. You don't act the way we think you should or say what we're hoping for. And they missed what was right in front of them. I think with Christmas, we get so caught up in all the details we know that we forget what we don't know. So just imagine with me for a moment. If you want, close your eyes and just picture this. Picture waiting for generations for God to come. Picture waiting for generations, for freedom to come to set your family free. Picture God being with you forever. Forgiving all your sin, healing all your sickness, rescuing you from all darkness, shining hope and peace and joy in the midst of all kinds of pain. Now picture all of this being wrapped up in a little baby to a woman who didn't fit the narrative, a virgin, not yet married, born in a stable, a lowly and meek and humble king. Picture this God who would leave his throne to become nothing so that you and I who in our sin are nothing could become something. This story It fills me with a sense of great hope and peace and joy. The details, let's not get caught up in those. Let's instead look to the promise that Jesus has come and is coming again. It'll be okay. And while we wait, let's love our neighbors. Let's care for those who are hurting. Let's be his people today for those who are far off. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we confess to you that sometimes we get so caught up in the things we know that we forget to see the things you're doing right in front of us. God, we know the story of your birth and yet sometimes it loses its power. We know the story of your coming and yet we sometimes forget that because you've come, you invite us to live differently. Teach us, Lord, to live a life of repentance where we turn from our harm and do that which is good for our neighbor. We love those who persecute us. We care for those who are hurting. Teach us, God, to see the story of your coming, a king who would become a baby that you would become nothing, that we might be something. Teach us, God, to make ourselves nothing, that others might also become something, to humble ourselves as you have, to love as you have, to be filled with a sense of joy no matter what comes. We pray all of this in Jesus' name, amen. For over a decade, we as a church existed in a movie theater, completely portable. And we set up and we tore down every single week and it was wonderful. And and last year, God was gracious to us and he provided us with this space. And I really enjoy having this space. I, I hope you do as well. But there was one thing when we moved into this space that was really obvious to us and we said something needs to be different. Have you ever wondered why so many churches sit empty most of the time? I mean, if you drive through Knoxville, you'll notice hundreds of church buildings that with the exception of just a couple of hours on Sunday morning and maybe a few hours on Wednesday night, the parking lots are empty and the buildings are unused. And I've often wondered, why is it that we have so much space that gets used so rarely? So as we moved into this building, we set out with a goal. How do we prepare to sustain our future as a church by utilizing this space for the sake of the community? How do we make this space something that connects us to other people as well as to one another and to God? So last year, at the beginning of the year, we launched something called West 5th Studios. Anybody had an opportunity to participate in some of their events? West Fifth Studios is an art studio located upstairs in this building where we house nine artists from the community. We launched this in partnership with Gabby and Kate, the two local artists who are managing it and leading it, and they have exciting and grand dreams for connecting with more artists in this community. Already this year we've connected through an open house here and a gallery off-site and and then even through a, a First Friday show here as well. We've connected in multiple different ways, but we have new opportunities for us next year to utilize this space to serve our neighbors, to connect with our community, and in a way that's a benefit to us as well to help offset the cost of being in this space. And so we win all across the board because we keep the lights on and we serve the community, which has me really excited. So as we move into 2022 and we seek to cultivate community through sustaining our future, we have big dreams this next year of expanding West Fifth Studios. We wanna add three more studios a ceramics lab, and an open workspace for four additional artists so that all together, we can have between seven to 10 more artists in the next year using our space during the week, connecting with others, and producing really great art. But in order to expand West Fifth Studios and some of the other opportunities we have to utilize this building throughout the week to serve our community, we need to do a little bit of work to this building. And that work includes a new furnace and some flooring and some paint, um, and also some really, really boring stuff like running some wires to improve the internet. Because I don't know if you know this, 24-inch brick is not conducive to Wi-Fi. And so, uh, in order to do some of these little simple improvements, part of our Sustaining the Future and Cultivate Community is saying, will you help us expand West Fifth and serve our community and make a difference through this space and outside of these walls. If this is something you're really interested in, I would love to give you a tour, personally, you and me, or a group of us, I'd love to give you a tour of the studios as they are, and of the spaces as they will be, where we want to expand. So I'll put my phone number right here, my email address. If you want to come and take a tour of the space and see what we're doing and what we hope to do, if you want to come and see how do these studios serve our community, reach out to me directly by a text or phone call or email, let me know, and we will find a time where I can give you a tour and show you this is what God's doing, and it's really, really exciting. But our goal of sustaining our future isn't just about expanding the way this building is being used throughout the week. Part of sustaining our future includes also, as a community, growing in generosity, See, when it comes to being in a church, everybody enjoys the stuff like coffee on Sunday mornings or not coffee, but things like brew fest or bar church where we get to go out into the community and they're fun and they're exciting. But most of the time, things like toilet paper and lights, those are less enjoyable to pay for, right? But really enjoyable when you don't run out. And so part of sustaining our future as a church is recognizing if every one of us grows in a habit of generosity, we're going to not only be able to utilize this space better, but we're gonna be able to go into our community in new and different ways and make a difference there. So as we cultivate community this year, we are asking everybody who calls the point their home to help us in one of two ways, or maybe in both. We're asking every person who's excited about the way this building can serve our community to consider giving a year-end gift, a special gift, something above and beyond your normal giving to say, I want to help support the cost of things like a new furnace and flooring so that we can expand West Fifth. But also we're asking everybody who calls this place your home, would you prayerfully consider this year making a gift on a regular basis? which you can do automatically if you prefer or you can still physically write checks, but if you would commit to joining me and saying every week or every month I want to contribute something, we believe whatever your best gift is, whether it's really small or really large, if it's your best gift, it will help you become a more generous person and experience the joy of Jesus, and it will help us connect with new people in great ways. So either through a year-end gift or through a new recurring or an increased recurring gift, will you prayerfully partner with us in cultivating community this year? Now, if you were handed one of those cards when you came in, how many of you have them? Will you hold them up? Let's be honest. How many of you have already discarded them? Like, that's not for me. I don't need it. That's, that's okay. We still love you. If you are prayerfully considering joining us in this endeavor, will you take one of those cards home and put it on your fridge? So that way when you open the fridge to get some food or to get a drink or you're just looking in the fridge because you don't know what else to do and you're hoping there's something to entertain you that moment, right? You can look at that Cultivate community and say, God, how can I participate in the work that you're doing? And for those of you on live stream, I don't know if you know this here in person, we have almost 50 people who join us every single week on live stream. Many of them are actively engaged in financially supporting the work we're doing and actively engaged in conversations and we're so grateful that you're a part of our community even from a distance. And so if you're on live stream, you can still help us. Do you know that just operating this space costs money all the time? Like we have to pay for live stream every week and coffee costs money and, and so some of these opportunities to give are something that helps us do the things we're doing even better. However you give and whatever you give, If you came prepared to give a gift today, you can do so online at thepointknocks.com. That's where you can also set up a recurring gift. You can give a gift in cash or check in the popcorn buckets in the back as you leave, where you can place your physical connect card there too. Uh, However you give and whatever you give, know this. We don't give to get God's love, but because we already have it. Thank you. Now, as mentioned earlier, we believe questions are a healthy part of faith. So every week we take a moment to respond to your questions as well as we can. So, uh, Emily, what questions came in today?
2: Yeah, we got a handful. Um, first, oh, I, this, was, this is a really good question. This morning I saw a woman yelling extreme profanities at a clerk at Walmart over an order that had not arrived. The clerk was clearly intimidated. As a Christian, should we intervene to defend the clerk and how?
0: Uh, <laughs> maybe. Um, I don't know. I think use your discernment. Uh, sometimes people that are yelling obscenities are not the most rational to talk to, so intervening will just make things worse. Um, and sometimes getting in the middle of that's not good. So, what I would say is, how can you encourage the clerk who's probably overworked and underpaid and, uh, doesn't deserve that kind of treatment, how can you speak kindly to them afterwards, wait patiently for them and reassure them that you care about them? Um, I would suggest that. And if the Lord leads you to intervene in the crazy obscenities that are being screamed, just don't join in screaming the obscenities, okay?
2: Good, Good advice, yeah. Um, Next question. I think you mentioned this, but why is there a pink candle holder with the other three being purple? Is there a significance or did the store run out of the purple color? That's
0: a great question. (laughs) Yeah, the purple is for repentance. So for three weeks out of this preparation season, we focus on our repentance, that we're sinful and need to turn from God. And uh, the pink one is to symbolize joy and Joy should be a little more upbeat than repentance, right? So that's why it's pink, to remind us that even in the midst of our repentance, we can find joy and we can celebrate.
2: Awesome. All right, next thing. Um, Amazing worship today. The new singer was phenomenal. Killed it. I'm not going to look at her to put her on the spot, but her name's Amanda. She's really nice. Y'all should be her friend. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and last thing, Matthew is the only gospel that specifies the Pharisees and Sadducees as the vipers in this passage. Why do you think that is?
0: Matthew specifically writes to a Jewish context to say, hey, Jewish people, you're missing the mark, um, which is why he quotes more than any other the Old Testament. And so I think he specifically mentions the Pharisees and Sadducees and say, look, this is... This is you guys. Like, you know this story, and you're right here in this midst. Um, but for Luke, he mentions the Pharisees, or he doesn't mention the Pharisees. He just talks about the whole group and says, don't call yourself children of Abraham. He talks about the tax collectors. He talks about the soldiers. For Luke, he focuses his gospel mostly on the Gentile and the female, actually. And so it's for those who are outside of God's community and those who were often oppressed. Um, that's why he doesn't specify. Interesting. Interesting. Anything else?
2: That was it. That was the last question.
0: That was it. Yeah. Excellent. Um, I thought I had something, and now I forgot, so.
2: Hmm. Cool.
0: Well, then, as we end our service today, <laughs> come as you are, even if sometimes you're a mess like me. All right? Yeah. Um, as we end our service today, I pray that you go with this blessing. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May he look upon you with favor, give you his peace.
1: Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to one of our Sunday morning messages. If this message has made an impact in your life, please let us know. Simply fill out the contact us page on thepointknox.com. And if you'd like to be a part of supporting the Point ministry, simply go to thepointknox.com forward slash support. Don't hesitate to contact us or join us in person Every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m., we pray this message has an impact in your life or at least makes it easy for you to connect with God where you are.